We are thrilled to bring you today a great conversation with Dr. Melissa Cady, the author of Pandemic and the founder of the website Pain Out Loud. So amazing to hear her give some advice and give some encouragement, but also give a very realistic uh, perspective of what we're up against. This is Pain Refrain. Well, welcome back to another episode of Pain Reframed. And I tell you guys, this conversation today with Tim, I, and Melissa is just a wonderful one where she is encouraging both individuals who have a pain issue or a pain experience um, or, or have that in their history or, or have a loved one that does, um, as well as providers who are treating pain or providers who are who are really treating anything and really looking to be more psychologically informed, more compassionate care providers. She really dives into depth on, on a whole handful of topics, including some of the challenges of, of, of the systemic structure of our health or sick care system, as well as some of the challenges faced by patients and providers um, in their own individual contributions to working with and managing pain. So you will not be disappointed with this conversation with Melissa. Tim and I weren't. And so without further ado, we give you Dr. Melissa Cady. Dr. Melissa Cady, what an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. So happy to be here. Thank you, Jeff and Tim. I, I've already had the pleasure of reading your book actually twice and have gotten to know quite about you and follow <laughs> a lot of what you're doing on social media and with Pain Out Loud, but our listeners haven't had the the, the distinguished pleasure. Do you mind giving them a few minute background of just kind of where you're coming from and kind of what your position is and, and what you're hoping to accomplish? Sure. Well, I think it's good to to mention that before I went to medical school, I actually was a personal trainer and I worked with physical therapists. So I got a little bit of an eye and understanding of just using the body from a musculoskeletal standpoint. And then I became a personal trainer doing my own business. And I realized I felt a little bit like I didn't have all the knowledge I needed to to help people with this low back pain or heart disease. Might as well go to medical school, went to medical school. And I had a choice between DO and MD school and applied to both and was actually allowed to go to both. But I chose to go to a DO school just because the musculoskeletal component that seemed to be emphasized. And so when I went into medical school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I loved everything. I loved learning. And I eventually ended myself in a year of general surgery uh, unexpectedly. And then I did a year of internal medicine. I did three years of anesthesiology. I decided I ran across a pain service. I thought it'd be great to take away people's pain. Went ahead and did a year of a pain medicine fellowship. And as I got to the end of my fellowship, I realized you know, I'm seeing what's being done out there. And I realized people were changing what they were doing based upon reimbursement. And I saw all these opioids being used. And I realized so many people were being trained in ways that didn't really emphasize all the different components from a holistic point of view, especially musculoskeletal point of view, especially reversible pain. I saw all this going on and I just had a bad taste in my mouth and I didn't want to be part of what was going on. And so I dropped into just doing anesthesia three or four days a week and trying to really think about how I can make a difference. And the thing that I realized is that what's under-delivered is usually what's under-reimbursed. And so I find that what's undervalued, people aren't going to actually deliver on that. So I felt like as a, a physician, I'm a teacher and I'm supposed to help people understand the situation so that they can better take care of themselves and make better choices. So Melissa, looking at some of your stuff, I've seen this term challenge doctor coming up a couple times. Where, where does that title come from and kind of what's the story behind that? Well, actually, if you look at the word challenge, first of all, if you look at the first three letters and the last three letters, it actually spells the word change. So I tell people to see change within challenge because a lot of times you look at the big long word challenge, which any challenge we 
have in life may see overwhelming. And if you would just realize that hidden within that challenge is actually the possibility of change. And so that is that is where it started. But ironically, I feel like because I'm so focused on pain and the world of pain, to me, challenge, pain, suffering, they really are all the same thing. And so I challenge not only people to understand pain better or challenge them that they can overcome things in their life, but I challenge myself and I challenge the system within which I work right now because, in essence, if we're going to really make a change, we've got to challenge every single level that's involved. In the process of several years of hemming and hawing about what to do, I I had someone actually come up to me at a gym of all places, completely random, and said, you, you know, you should write a book. You have a message. And I kind of laughed. I was like, me write a book? I don't know about that. But then I just started taking a journal on airplanes and, and just chunks of time where I would just, my passion and my fire inside of me and my frustration of how people weren't seeing this, I just started putting it down on paper. And then I pulled it out one day, put it on a Microsoft Word document. And then I actually kind of, <laughs> I, I look for somebody that out there was doing a lot of, of work and, and self-development and getting your message out there and followed people like Brendan Burchard. And then I went to this Author 101 University and I, I basically kind of cornered them in a way and presented my book. And two months later, they gave me a contract. So there you go. Pandemic uh, arose. That is so awesome. And so for the listeners, the, the whole title is Pandemic, a practical and holistic look at chronic pain, the medical system and the anti-pain lifestyle. So I, I want to dive right in. So Melissa, I, I woke up this morning and last night I was on the airplane and I, I, kept, I read, read your book a second time and kept writing more and more notes. And I woke up this morning and I had seven pages of notes I wanted to cover. And I realized that's a bit excessive. <laughs> and so I worked hard this morning to trim it down. And so if, if it's okay, I want to kind of jump right in and just give the listeners some idea of the incredible content. I and mean, this is an extraordinarily well-written book. I mean, not only from a perspective of the challenges of what we're up against, but also from uh, an information standpoint for patients. So, I mean, this is not something only healthcare providers would benefit from or, or people who are wondering about the challenges of the system. There's a tremendous amount of just very useful diagnostic information that if, if any patient who's struggling with pain was to read it, they would have a lot better idea of what what is going on and why? Was that your original intent to, to to speak to those individuals as well? Or how did that evolve? It was a little confusing because people say, well, who are you speaking to? I'm like, <laughs> well, I'm really talking to the patients. But you know what? This is not a book if I wanted to write it for professionals that they would feel like they had the need to grab because if they don't feel like they have a, a deficit of understanding or needed more information, then they're not going to be looking for it. So I felt like I needed to embed messages to healthcare professionals so that they would kind of get what I'm I'm trying to say and but at the same time make it applicable where the patients could understand it and not overly medicalized in the jargon. So it really is speaking to both. Uh, we all need to wake up. Yeah, no no doubt. And you do such an amazing job in the book of illustrating the problems, and you, you've already gotten into one right off the bat here. I, lo I love what you just said. W what is under-delivered tends to be what is under-reimbursed. Nothing is a more unfortunate truth, I, I don't think, in our system. And, you know, I look at chapter 10, and you wrote this wonderful paragraph, you know, that in many cases, physicians must generate enough revenue to keep business investors happy, make enough profit beyond the overhead cost. To accomplish the financial goals, physicians may run their practices like assembly lines. In other words, physicians may be 
heavily encouraged to perform a certain number of procedures per number of patients in order to meet the investor revenue expectations. With physicians churning through patients, it is no wonder little time is spent emphasizing valuable life skills and education with patients, and it all comes back to poor reimbursement by insurance companies, which increases the need for higher patient volumes and services with higher financial return. This affects chronic pain patients because the quickest and most lucrative options for physicians, CEOs, and medical and industry middlemen are injections, surgeries, and multiple brief office visits with little time to do anything but offer prescriptions. I mean, that is a an incredible and unfortunate truth. M- Melissa, how are we going to fight back against that? I mean, when the temptation is there, we know what chronic pain patients need, and that is that listening, that time, that emphasis on, on self-care and internal locus of control. How do we begin to manage in this environment? You know, I don't think people are going to like my answer. I don't think it's easy if you still, sometimes I feel like if you're in a system that's broken, it seems like it just gets more and more complicated the more they try to change the rules and and then you have to follow more rules. And to me, it just, I don't want to be, of course I do anesthesia part-time, so I'm kind of part of it, but I'm a little more distant from it than the decision-making of doing pain procedures. But I really feel like we've got to get back to the physician and the patient or the pain professional or physical therapist and the patient relationship. And if you keep dividing that by these intermediaries, whether it's insurance companies or other types of systems that are trying to dictate your value, I don't think you're ever going to deliver to the patient or give them what they really need. And so as much as people don't want to hear me say this, I almost think it takes kind of a revolution in effect. I know you're going to always have a certain level of insurance that's going to be present for definitely those that are extremely low socioeconomic that can't afford anything um, at the levels that we want to provide. But at the same time, I feel like if we just keep it cash only and I know that nobody wants to hear this, but <laughs> I really, I really believe that we can make it affordable again. I really believe it, there's, there's a hybrid. I think we can do a hybrid in effects where, where we have the ability to let the patient determine the value. And that's where I think the, the biggest challenge right now is to re-educate and help the, and I think it's changing on their own because they're so frustrated with the way the pain train, so to speak, is going that people are spending money, millions of dollars on whatever you want to call it, complimentary alternative. To me, it's logical medicine, but, (laughs) you know, but people are starting to pay for it out of pocket. And so I feel like if you can have most of the delivery or a majority of it just paid in cash where you make it affordable and we create systems uh, from the professional side that allows you to stay directly with the patient and they they express the appreciation for that value. I think things will, the, the tide will turn, but it's going to take a huge, huge effort from a lot of people to do that. Yes, I, I, well stated, Melissa. And I, I think, again, a revolution is required. And a revolution starts always at a groundswell of, you know, on the street from the individuals that are affected and then from individuals that are part of this, as you said, the system that clearly they're burning out. The healthcare providers are burning out because in their heart, they didn't come into this to cause suffering. And yet that's what they're delivering. And, I, and so they're not happy. At least many of them are not because they're not doing what they were called to do. And so I think that my sense is I think it can switch. I, I believe that it requires all of us, though, on each encounter, each encounter with this chronic pain to be very blunt and say how effed up the system is mm-hmm. and validate yeah. them on that. Absolutely. You know, and I have to mention one thing is that 
I feel like by remaining, it's you'll see this in so many different, and I'm definitely not an expert in, in the history of all these different systems, but when you, when you look at a system that's not running properly or not uh, affecting a chronic illness, not acute illnesses, but the chronic management of certain things, when it's, when it's not being done appropriately and you participate within it, which I've been guilty of, is that when you stay in it and and you're not delivering on the way you feel like it should be done and the patients start getting frustrated, the problem is they start associating the poor performance or the poor experience on the professional and not necessarily on the system when they don't really understand it. So it starts putting a bad taste in their mouth, especially I see this with some physicians. They're getting very kind of like anti-physician at times because they don't like the way they're being treated. But in essence, it's a very downward stream effect of the system itself. Yes, well stated. And I think as we go forward, I think, you know, when we band together, and that's why, again, I remain hopeful because voices like yourself are now getting louder and they're from all these little pockets where we're connecting these voices that are saying you know it is wrong and we're bringing patients in to, to tell their story which is horrific stories of what's been happening to them in fact I wouldn't mind if just to jump back into your book there 193 there you if you wouldn't just mind jumping in there and you know talking about what you know how patients when they when they do feel disconnected what they're saying Most patients inherently know that their care should be personalized, but they may not think of it in those words. Many times it comes out in the form of, the doctor thinks it's all in my head. They never touched me or examined me, or, but I don't want to take pain medication. Yes, and if we have heard that once, we've heard it a thousand times, uh, (laughs) boy, well stated. It's so tough too, because, you know, doctors or physicians are put in these challenging situations where they don't know where to go with it. We've had, uh, Melissa, you had mentioned you had listened to some of our previous episodes and we had um, Dr. Adam Ryan and OBGYN on and he did an incredible job of painting this really challenging picture of, you know, guys, I don't really have the time or the training for this. You know, I was really educated that this was okay to do, that I was educated this was the right thing to do. And now everyone, you know, I think in chapter 12, you wrote about how now you're seeing regulatory agencies penalize and criminalize physicians for doing what they've been taught to do, yet they're they're given very little education on the alternative. So I love when, I didn't love, but I thought it was fascinating when Adam told this story of, you know, here I have this this breakthrough moment with a patient and kind of the wall comes down and this authentic conversation begins to unravel and things are emotional and things are heavy. And A, I'm really not well-trained to go forward from there. B, I don't really have the time. And C, specialists aren't really all that available. And even if they are, patients now, you made a great point in the book that now patients have another subspecialty they have to make time for in their life. Physicians are in a really tough spot here. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, the system doesn't let you be humane or human as much anymore. So it's, it's very confining and very restrictive. And then the resources, like you said, can be extraordinarily difficult to get your hands on. Well, Melissa, I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to be at Michigan State back in the uh, mid 80s and in the osteopathic school, I was getting my master's there in biomechanics. And I look back now, I mean, I still bring that perspective and much more so now, but it was almost in the late 
90s when, again, the whole EBP movement comes about and, you know, I was questioning, you know, the, you know, the reliability of what we did, the validity of what we're doing is, is being questioned and, you know, does this matter? And uh, you have all this challenge of, you know, are we doing the right thing? And I'm curious. What I've seen is that DO programs have changed a bit in their um, delivery of musculoskeletal care because even back then it was starting to get a little less uh, focused. But hopefully that's changed in, in your system. I'm curious just to hear about your experience as you went through uh, osteopathic training. Sure. Well, you know, and I can't speak for what's being done the, the most recent years, but I would say that, and, and this is the way the mid ninety, the mid nineteen hundreds was about anyway. That there was a convergence of the pharmaceutical, the basically the MD type education, uh, into the osteopathic philosophy, which interestingly came from a gentleman who was an MD at the end of the eighteen hundreds and was frustrated with the bloodletting and all the other things that, which is kind of interesting when you look back at the the way history repeats itself. But it was very frustrated with how things were being done and and wanted to. To assess the body in a different way. But the type of training I had within the, the actual osteopathic medical school, they integrate it through throughout the years, the first couple years for sure. It's called either, they've changed the acronym, but osteopathic manipulative medicine or osteopathic manipulative therapy. But it's actually an assessment and a diagnostic and therapeutic tool. And to me, the way I describe it to people is that because there's such a huge like variety of techniques and, uh, and tools that it almost to the outsider looks like a combination of physical therapy, chiropractic, massage therapy, just because of the way that we do different treatments can look so different. But in essence, it gave me a real comfort with touching the patient and allowed me to get a sense of the differences in different body types, whether it's just tissue differences, actually have an eye for things that look different. But the thing that I've realized through experience is that, you know, the whole holistic philosophy, the whole body is integrated as a unit, and the whole musculoskeletal system that's emphasized in the philosophy of osteopathy. There's some things that we focus on, just like MRIs, (laughs) that may not be relevant, you know, things that look a little bit off or slightly uh, asymmetric in a patient, trying to distinguish when that's relevant or not, it really takes a uh, an experienced person to look at all the different things that could be going on and whether or not it's relevant or not. It just add it to the story. I would say a lot of people don't use a lot of these tools, uh, especially if they go to like ophthalmology and working with just an eyeball. You know, there, there are definitely people that let that skill go. You know, like I tell people in the book, Um, I find some people are more holistic in their practice later. Uh, I find some MDs are more holistic in how they look at the whole patient and not taken over by the system's pressures. Um, While some DOs kind of like, you know, they get kind of compressed into that very segmented focused approach versus a holistic approach. You know, there's a couple of key points I want to bring out that you said, and that's really what I believe great practitioners bring to the table, that idea of system, a musculoskeletal system, a moving system. And even though, yes, some of these asymmetries as we look through may not be relevant, the process of systematically going through and laying on the hands on an individual and asking for their responses to various movements and what they feel in and of itself 
is therapeutic because, you know, the person now realizes someone is looking at me, they're touching, they're going through this system. They're actually trying to figure out why it hurts when I move. And I, the, just the power there, I think we've undervalued because we thought we were seeing something, an, an asymmetry, and then we test it and it wouldn't really show up to be that relevant. We Again, we went into this reductionist mindset that that little piece of information was what we thought w- was important when, in fact, we should have been looking at a system, the systematic view of that, and how did this look in terms of the whole context of a patient encounter, if you will. And that that's what I really hope. And again, back to the roots of, you know, solid physiotherapy, osteopathy, the hands-on practitioners where they really um, go back to those roots of really observing, listening, and laying on of hands and coming to an agreement with the uh, the person in front of you. What what is really the best course forward? Well, you just mentioned the way it used to be. Well, that was before the system came into place. So <laughs> that, <laughs> that's a tough one. But I agree. There's a lot of caring that goes on by merely just touching and giving them their time uh, or your time to them. And I think a huge part of this too, you know, talking about, this holistic, this high quality patient encounter, such a huge part of it is, is the patient getting that impression that not only have you thoroughly examined them, but that you've thoroughly believed them. You know, and Melissa, you talked beautifully in, in your book about with pain, it's tough because, you know, unlike when you break your bone, it, it, you know, that's pretty easy to empathize with someone who breaks a bone. It's an obvious injury. You know, they're in some pain with headaches and, ba- and chronic back pain. When you can't see it, that, that invisibility creates those roadblocks to empathy. And, you know, Melissa, what, I mean, what strategies do you use to, to make sure that a patient feels as though like, no, no, I mean, I really get you. I, I realize I can't see it. And I know that makes this challenging, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm really here with you. Well, actually I kind of emphasize the fact that only you are experiencing this pain and it's not for me to judge. Uh, I've been there myself and I use my own experience when it's appropriate and just say that, you know, it's hard to explain to people how intense things can be, but I want them to explain to me so I have a better understanding, even just from a how consistent it is or how it comes and goes or when does it get bad. And, you know, you're just you're just reemphasizing and validating them by the fact that you are trying to take that journey with them to understand what they're going through. Uh, I, I love it. And one thing I love, Melissa, about the whole the whole dialogue in the book and having those kind of conversations was there's a lot of blame to go around in, in this whole scene. I mean, the system is is really turned into to quite the spiraling mess. But at the same time, you didn't let the patient off the hook. I loved your term. It was diagnose centricity, where people can can really fail to take responsibility of what their lifestyle has caused. And yet again, there's plenty of errors throughout the system. There's plenty of errors docs are making, plenty of errors the system's making. But there's a whole bunch of responsibility that falls on the patient to look at their lifestyle and to look at what they are doing and make sure they're appreciating their role in their problem. And I think that when you do a really good exam, like we're talking about, when you earn that trust and the patient believes that you believe them, you, you can start to actually have these conversations where you can say, hey, now look, I'm going to demand a bit out of you. You know, and I, I really think Melissa, that's something that's missing, that willingness for us to look at the patient and say, hey, you have a big role here and you've got to carry your end of the bargain as well. 
Oh, absolutely. And you just made me think about when the diagnocentric, how patients can be diagnocentric. I was just thinking how if they don't feel validated by a person or a professional, the moment they get a word to describe their condition, they immediately grab that as validation. It's just another way of looking at how it's very hard, as you all know, and I know you've you've talked about it. Once someone has a preconceived notion as to what it is, or it gives validation to the suffering that they're undergoing, they won't let go of that. And so I think the hardest thing that we can do as professionals is trying to get them to release from that identity (laughs) and uh, allow the idea that it may not be what they think it is, and that they might have more power over a particular diagnosis that really they can't change, such as degenerative disc disease, which is one of my pet peeves I hear a lot of people using as their excuse. But I mean, there, there could be some real validity, but it's just, it's just uh, disempowering. I'd like to continue on that front there because it is such a big part of what we do. Our belief of what we are becomes our behaviors. And so it becomes that that dance of reframing and how we can reframe. So I'm a very practical question. Let's say you, you have a patient that comes in and, you know, has the laundry list, but primarily is anchoring on, you know, degenerative disc disease and fibromyalgia. And, you know, they come in there. What is your normal encounter, your initial encounter? How long do you have with your, with your clients and, and then subsequently? On a given, you know, just a given uh, encounter, you know, how many minutes? Well, just to clarify, currently I I do not have a pain clinic. Uh, trying to create the business platform that makes the most sense to me is still a progress more in my head than uh, in front of me. But I do deal with a lot of colleagues and friends and family, and I educate patients when I get the chance because I do see a lot of pain patients that I do some sedation for. Whenever they have this kind of focus and and you're trying to elicit some kind of maybe help them out in some way i i find that when you sit there and you talk about their experience and how i said earlier how their pain may change from time to time a lot of times you find that their pain's not really consistent or really as persistent or bad all the time and so trying to get out from them when things get better that maybe they have good days or bad days sometimes i i I let them get it out first because obviously I want to build a little rapport. I've learned from (laughs) past experience to not just jump out at people that doesn't, it's not well received. Like you said, you have to figure out the right time. I've had some interesting experiences where I say, so when those times are better, do you think your degenerative disc disease got better? Like the imaging or, or do you think that the kid, so I want them to connect the fact that they're looking at something that's either stagnant or getting worse but yet their symptoms and function has gotten better in other days. So using a little bit of contrast, sometimes a light bulb goes on. Yeah, that's a great strategy. Did your pain fluctuate? And if we just image you um, throughout the day, are we going to see your degeneration getting better and getting worse? And if so, well, let's work on those things that make your degeneration better. Doctor, you know, and along those lines, you know, when folks are anchored on those images, they're often very fearful. You know, fearful of movement. They're thinking, you know, my spine is unstable, my spine is degenerative, my spine is inherently frail. Um, speaking, you know, we have a lot of patients who listen to the show. Melissa, can you speak kind of directly to that point? You know, in this concept of, you know, limiting activity um, is not uh, the way forward when you're dealing with pain. Can you just talk talk a bit on that? 
I really do think from a anatomy standpoint, I think it is good for people. I think what they see a lot of times, they just see this vertebral body and a disc on display on an image. And I think it does a huge disservice. Everything that we see on these images and textbooks, we dive right through the skin and the muscles and the fascia and all the things that help keep us from just falling apart like in soup like we're not just these parts that just float around it's it's actually very highly integrated and very tight and and very strong the thing is that if you don't recognize that you do have that strength you're not going to fall apart then you will tend to you know avoid activity if you're thinking in those ways but the problem with inactivity is that deconditioning in and of itself you just look at astronauts that are out for a year they haven't had gravity to work against and they get back to to earth in the world of gravity and just walking is painful, but they've got to recondition their body to actually handle those kind of challenges. And if someone who's on earth that's dealing with, you know, back pain and worried about hurting themselves just because there's pain and they do less and less, they're deconditioning themselves for any activity in life. And so they're making themselves have pain just for any activity beyond just sitting there. And so I always encourage people all the time to do a little bit more. Now, maybe the strategy needs to be different, but you still need to find a way to do a little bit more. And I always talk about baby steps. It's critically important to understand that our bodies are adaptable. So just as as they're adaptable to whether you're building your bicep or building up your leg strength in the gym, your body's adaptable in the reverse direction. So the less input you give it, the less it's going to give back. So you have to find a way to do something and find something that you're, you know, you might need some strategy from a physical therapist on which movements are good for me that are going to enhance my situation. You know, and following up on that, I thought you had a great checklist there in your book and on anti-pain lifestyle reminders. And in some respects, you know, it's a list of about, you know, 20, 25 items and, and yet they're all have value. And I, I'm curious on that, that, that dance between, you know, not overwhelming the patient to say, you know, you know, you look at some of my chronic pain patients and, you know, they're going to check every box along there. I'm curious how you begin to say, well, what is your key pathway or that you, where you most need improvement? Is it just listening to your body or is it practice mindfulness and meditation? Part of those are, are complementary. So I, I'm, I'm curious, how do you, have you implemented that checklist or if so, do you kind of use it in your mind to triage to say, you know what, my experience tells me if I just get this person sleeping well, and that's going to be our number one focus, then other things might follow. Just curious your thoughts on the checklist and how you implement it in, in, in practice. Sure. Actually, after I wrote the book, I've had a lot of people ask me the same thing. And because we're such complex organisms, we have all these different layers. And that's why that holistic approach is incredibly valuable because you have to see the big picture. So all these things are really looking at all the different components that can make your pain worse or better. What I've realized is that a lot of people you know, obviously it's sometimes it's really hard to sleep uh, when you have pain. Uh, sometimes opioids, if people are on those strong painkillers, can make it mess with your sleep a little bit to get in that deep restorative sleep. So sometimes physical therapists can or other professionals can help 
a patient find a more comfortable position or uh, whether it's supporting certain areas or, or sleeping certain positions or maybe a better bed, who knows what their situation is. So you got to look at the big picture. But I do believe of all these different things that you're speaking of, that sleep is critical because none of us are at our highest performance if we're lacking a lot of sleep. And so if you want to tackle anything in your life, usually you want to plan maybe a good night's sleep the night before you try a new habit that you haven't say had the willpower uh, or sometimes, you know, there's even the stress of, you know, your day or how you're living your life can impact your, your sleep as well. So sleep and stress, I think are kind of married together in that if you can address those things that they can be critical for making the other changes. So it's not so overwhelming, but if you look at the patient holistically, you might see something that's blaringly obvious of their life of the whole bio psycho social, you know, approach that looking all the aspects of them. And so that's where the art of medicine is. That if you're walking in a journey with someone in pain, you see the red flag or you see something that is really critical for them to even make any progress in the other areas. And then the one thing is breathing. I, I don't think if you're, you're awake <laughs> and, and you're dealing with pain, you know, there's, there's different ways of breathing or just being in the moment and not being afraid of the pain, but more trying to understand it and moving forward or getting the help you need to help you understand it. So I think those are, are the first few that I would would work on. Oh, that is that is so good. And Melissa, I think just to kind of bring everything around full circle, you know, and talk about all the different parties that that have a responsibility here. You know, we always talk about taking those elements and that checklist and helping our patients, you know, look at strategies and how they can become healthier. One thing that you really that really hit home um, with me from your book was that we as providers need to do that as well. You spoke about how so many physicians are stressed out and themselves in chronic pain and not in a really healthy place. And I love that you said that, you know, people will do and model what they see around them. We, we can talk until the cows come home. People mm -hmm. are inspired by role models. And the more that I look, you know, I'm, I'm coming up on 10 years out here. So I still consider myself a relatively new clinician. And as I look around at those clinicians who I really look up to, Tim being a great example, you know, so many of them are themselves physically and mentally very healthy. And I think that that's part of what makes them special. And I think that, I mean, I would love to have you speak on this a little bit because I know you have a, a deep interest that I think we have to call out to other providers. Look, man, you got to walk the walk. Like if you don't, I think walking the walk and saying nothing is better than saying a lot and not taking a step. You know what I mean? Like if you're an amazing example and, and, and people are like, God, I, I feel better when I'm around that person, their energy. I want to be more like that. The power of that um, is really transcendent. Just any thoughts on that as we kind of um, head towards close note, the last few topics? <laughs> well, if it gives you any indication, I never signed up to work five days a week in, in the medical system after I got out of my training. So the system kind of sucks the energy out of you as much as you try. I mean, the, the most resilient may not have it taken out of them. But as as professionals, you, you need to stop and reflect on how you're practicing and how it just like a, a parent with a child, how you're behaving and how you're doing things and how that's going to impact the people in front of you that you care about, that you want to take care of. If you look at the whole system of the medical system holistically, there's no doubt that there's a checklist we could go through to say that this needs to be improved upon. So I think for individuals, it's it's a number one priority for me to look out for myself, not in a selfish way, but 
in order for me to actually have the energy, like you said, to give back more than 100% to those that really need it. Because in essence, this is why I went into the medical field, is that I, I want to care for my patients. And if the system is keeping me from caring for them in a way that is right, then I need to find a better way. And so uh, I do think it takes a lot of us that think like that to step out there and take care of yourself so you can take care of others better. Well, so well stated, so well stated indeed. And I wouldn't mind, Melissa, you know, as we close, if you wouldn't let the listeners know uh, how they can find you throughout all the different avenues. And again, please uh, let us know again about your book. Sure. Well, the, the book itself, Pandemic, is actually on Amazon. It can be found in some bookstores, but you'd have to check in with them if they have it in stock. But Amazon's probably the quickest, easiest. And the other thing that I'm doing that's kind of my big push and my big effort, it's all self-funded, no sponsors for it, is actually Pain Out Loud. So I want people to be able to hear other people's stories out loud uh, that have been suffering from pain and found a way to challenge it and to overcome it or improve their situation. Uh, it also has a small membership access to a lot of interviews that I hope to get you guys on and uh, a lot of uh, professional interviews with surgeons, with physical therapists, with all types of pain professionals, pain medicine physicians, people in the alternative world. I just feel like there that this is a village and there's something of value from everyone. And I want people to see a more of a, as I say, a panoramic view of what <laughs> is out there <laughs> and, and that there's no panacea, but um, pardon my humor. But, uh, <laughs> paintoutloud.com it's where you can you know see some of these stories and uh, get dive in deeper and I'm in the middle of building some digital online educational products not by myself only because that doesn't really support my whole collaborative approach is that I'm going to have a couple other people helping me create some products to educate people about pain Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Melissa. This was wonderful. And folks, you can you can track Melissa on Twitter as well. Um, I've really enjoyed following her Twitter feed and seeing some of the great content she's putting out there as well. Um, Melissa, in, in audience, I can't say enough about the book. Um, if you have not read Pandemic, um, please, I can't figure out who it's better for. I can't figure out if it's better for patients or better for providers. And I think that really speaks to the fact that this conversation is really universal. It talks about the challenge of the system, the challenge of understanding pain, the challenge of living with pain, and more importantly, these strategies to do so better. So healthcare providers, folks who are, who are struggling with pain or have loved ones who are, um, this is a must read. Um, I got it on Audible and that, that made it easy for me. So I was able to listen to it a couple of times. So um, I've got each version. So Melissa, thank you so much for taking your time. Thank you so much for doing what you do out there in society. We get a few more people like you and we're going to go some places. Oh, thank you. I love your podcast. Thank you for doing what you're doing, Tim and Jeff. I tell you, these are the kind of providers who are really going to change the future of healthcare. These folks that are willing to really reach across the aisle, have the challenging conversations and recognize what we're up against, but also recognize the opportunity and be willing to put a lot of workload on their shoulders, but also to make sure everybody understands what they're responsible for and really having success in what needs to be a multifaceted approach to solving the chronic pain problem. Folks, please uh, head over to painoutloud.com. 
I repeat, painoutloud.com. And if you have friends or patients who are struggling with chronic pain, have them go there and use that for a resource and maybe even share their story and become a part of the community. And I'm telling you, I know I said it several times during the episode, but if you have not read Pandemic yet, again, I'm not sure if it's better for providers or patients, but the reality is um, it's much needed for both. You, you will come away a better practitioner and, and with a better understanding of, of how to manage and deal with pain. So a big thanks to Melissa. As always, a huge thanks to our sponsors. So ISPI, I'm head over to ispinstitute.com. Make sure you're checking out all the great content courses that ISPI offers. They've got short-term, they've got weekend courses, they've got long-term courses, they've got the six-month certification, um, and they continue to, to charge and lead the way in all things pain education. So huge thanks as always to ISPI, to Evidence in Motion. We're over on the blog, evidenceinmotion.com. And as always, if you're willing to uh, jump over to iTunes and leave a review, that will result in this message being heard by more people who need to hear it. Thank you all so much, and we will see you on the next episode. Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.